0: Good morning, College Park. Please turn with me to Philippians 1, verses 12 to 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole Imperial Guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Christ. Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice.
1: This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Paul. And wow, what a great morning of worship we've already enjoyed together. Baptism testimonies, thanks to Aaron for leading worship. Kristen, super job with the kids. Excellent to be together in God's house, just doing church together. If you were looking for your sermon manuscript today, you were probably puzzled. We're going to try something a little different. There's some notes for you, just kind of the outline and a place for you to take some notes, some stuff I'll be talking about and some things that I might not mention. So take that and use it as a study guide. If you absolutely have to have the sermon manuscript, it's actually posted online. So you can get your mobile device out and and read through it as we go through the sermon this morning. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, as we now dive again into your word, this wonderful book of Philippians, our prayer would be that of the psalmist who said, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. God, we confess that we've come from a week that has kept us preoccupied, it has diverted our attention, it has stolen our affections from those things that we truly value, And we ask now that through your word, in the power of your spirit, you would unite our hearts to fear, to know, and to love you like never before. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever known someone who marched to the tune of a different drummer than the rest of us? Who lived their life by their own agenda? who looked out at life through a lens that was, frankly, a little bit weird. Elwood P. Dowd was such a man. He was a middle-aged, amiable, and somewhat eccentric individual whose best friend was a six-foot, three-and-a-half-inch white rabbit named Harvey. And in Dowd's own words, Harvey was a puka, and a puka was a benign but mischievous creature from Celtic mythology who had a special fondness for social outcasts. Now, in this Pulitzer Prize-winning play by Mary Chase that was then made into an Oscar-winning movie in 1950, Elwood P. Dowd, played by Jimmy Stewart, goes through life with a different operating system than everybody else. And it might best be summarized by this line from The movie. Years ago, my mother used to tell me. (laughs) She would say, Elwood, in this world, she always used to call me Elwood. In this world, you can be oh so smart or oh so pleasant. For years, I've been smart. I recommend pleasant. Now, if you want a better Jimmy Stewart, uh, watch this clip from the opening scene of the movie and get a sense for this unique individual.
0: The Dow oh, The Dowd's my name Elwood P yes, Sir uh, Let me uh, give you one of my cards Oh, that won't be necessary, sir Just uh, sign right here huh? Beautiful day Oh, every day is a beautiful day yeah. Thank you Nice man To have your relative out of the house before the company comes. Mother, well, you're sure Uncle Elwood won't come back and spoil everything after the guests arrive. Oh, of course not, dear. Your uncle always spends the afternoon downtown at those filthy bars and taverns. You know that.
1: You see, while other people were concerned with the things that you and I are concerned with, with money and position and prestige, all Elwood seems to be concerned with is just enjoying himself in the moment with whatever company he has. In fact, he is so self-forgetful that people think he's a bit loony. So much so that his family tries to commit him to a mental institution. But the genius of the movie is this, that by the end of the film, Elwood is so warm and amiable and affirming that you begin to wonder who actually has the best grasp of reality after all. Now, after his dramatic conversion, the Apostle Paul, like Elwood P. Dowd, went through life with a completely different operating system than other people. Except for Paul, it wasn't his belief in an imaginary rabbit that changed his agenda in life. It was his personal encounter with the resurrected and living Lord Jesus Christ. And that moment, everything changed for Paul. He said, I no longer live for myself. In fact, he said, I died. But I live for Christ and for His agenda. And because I live for Christ, I live for other people because that's who Christ is concerned about. Paul wanted nothing for himself and he wanted everything for other people. And for Paul, everything meant fundamentally a chance to hear the gospel of life in Jesus Christ. And in our text today, we're going to hear the testimony of this somewhat strange individual. A man who no longer cares about the things that we love, security and comfort and money. A man who, as it were, has gospel goggles on and he sees all of life through that lens. He is a gospel-driven man and his perspective on everything has been changed because of that. And if you and I today will enter into that relationship with Jesus and allow him to change us, from the inside, we will have our perspective on life changed as well. And in our text today, we're going to find out that those who are gospel-driven people have a new perspective on two things. First, on our difficult problems. Second, on our difficult people. First, our difficult problems, verses 12 to 14. Look at verse 12 again with me. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, what had happened to Paul? Well, it's a long story, actually. It goes back about two years. Paul was finishing up his third missionary journey, and he felt impelled by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Now, remember that. He was urged by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. What happened there is that the Jews arrested him and brought him before the Roman tribunal for trial. You see, Paul was preaching a message that they couldn't tolerate, that you could follow Christ without becoming a Jew. And they intended to rid the world of Paul. The Romans who were governing the world at that time were puzzled as to what to do with this case. Because these strange, bizarre religious accusations meant nothing to them. But they knew that the Jews were upset. And so they moved Paul about 50 miles away to a town called Caesarea for safekeeping. And there he languished while his case dragged on and on in court for two years. Finally, Festus becomes governor and is a favor to the Jew. Festus... Asks Paul if he will go back to Jerusalem for his trial. Paul understood that if that were to happen, the Jews would certainly lynch him. And so he pulls out his Roman card, says, I'm a citizen of Rome. I appeal to Caesar. So he was put on a boat, shipwrecked, landed on the island of Malta, bitten by a poisonous snake. Finally, he arrives in Rome and there he's put under house arrest. These are the things that happened to Paul. Now look again at verse 12. What does he say about those things in verse 12? What does he say about what happened to him? He says nothing. If you and I were writing a letter to our friends, and by the way, this is a letter that Paul wrote from Rome about 62 AD to his friends in Philippi. And here's where Philippi is. He'd gone from Jerusalem on that red line up to Rome in prison. But he had friends, a supporting church back in Philippi, and they had sent funds for him for his care while he was imprisoned in Rome. And so this whole letter is essentially a missionary thank you letter for their support. But if you and I had been writing, uh, we probably would have written about all those dramatic things that happened to us. You know how the Jews had made this plot to kill us, and his nephew saved him, and, and he almost got the 39 lashes by the Romans, and, and then he was shipwrecked and, and barely made it out with his life, and he was bitten by a poisonous snake, and... Paul describes none of that here. And the question is why? The answer is Paul is a gospel-driven person. He cares nothing about what had happened to him. He cares everything about what had happened to the gospel. And as John Stott says, all of Paul's anxiety was reserved for the work he was engaged in. He had no anxiety left for his own concerns, and as long as that work was going forward, he cares nothing for himself. He says in verse twelve, "I want you to know brothers, sisters, we 're one in the family of God, and you should share this perspective with me as his point. And instead of talking about how he was doing, he wanted to talk about how the gospel was doing, and he rejoiced because the chains that bound him had served to release the gospel. The gospel is the theme of this section. We've seen it in verse 12. Look at verse 14, to speak the word. Verse 15, to preach Christ. Verse 17, proclaim Christ. Verse 18, Christ is proclaimed. The gospel is all through this passage and it raises the question, what is the gospel? And if you've been with us in our study in the book of Romans, you should know that by now. And I'm sure you do. But let me just summarize it for you as short as I know how. And the gospel is simply this. It is what Jesus did because of what we did. You see, we were rebellious sinners. We went against God's laws. We were under His wrath, deserving His eternal punishment. So Jesus came to this earth from heaven, lived a sinless life, and gave His life up as a substitution in our place so that the sinner can be justified, made right with God, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That is the gospel. But what Paul says is, because of what happened to me, this gospel has advanced. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's a very interesting term, and it's actually a term that's used for those who go in front of an army to prepare the way for their advance. And it's a wonderful picture, because... If you're in the armed forces, you know that no enemy territory gives itself up easily. What happens when you try to advance? There is resistance. People fight and it's hard to break through. So we have things like specialists and we have army engineers and we use ordnance to blow holes in the enemy's defense so that our army can advance and move forward. And it is exactly the same way in the spiritual realm. There's the kingdom of light That is advancing into the kingdom of darkness. And that kingdom of darkness does not receive the light. It resists it. And in order for it to advance, God has a very special tool that he uses. An ordinance that he likes to blow up to create holes in the defense. And that special tool is our difficulties. So how had what had happened to Paul advanced the gospel? Well, go back through that story and think of all of the people that heard the gospel because of what had happened to Paul. There was a huge crowd of Jews and the Roman tribunal in Jerusalem that heard him give a full testimony for why he was imprisoned. There were two governors, Felix and Festus. There was a king and a queen, Bernice and Agrippa who were so interested in the message that they wanted Paul to tell them more about it. And he says in Acts 26 that he appealed personally to Agrippa. He said, I know you're close to believing. Will you just believe? And then there were the 275 men on the ship. God sent a a, a two-week-long hurricane, a nor'easter, that blew that ship almost to pieces. And the people were terrified. And Paul got to proclaim his faith in God. The ship was wrecked on the island of Malta. And there Paul is bitten by a poisonous snake and he doesn't die. And people understand that God's power is here. The leader of that island, his father was sick and Paul went and prayed for him. And the whole island learned of the power of God in Jesus Christ. And would any of that have happened if Paul had not gone through these things? No. They were what advanced the gospel. But we're just getting started. Because now where is Paul? He is in Rome. He is not in a prison But it says at the end of Acts chapter 28 that the Romans allowed Paul to live in his own rented house, but so that he didn't give them the slip and disappear, they couldn't afford that because he was a high-profile case, they decided to chain him to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day. Now, if you and I had been there, we would have been going, are you kidding me? I've served you, God, for all these years. I just about got beaten up and shipwrecked and I barely made it to Rome alive. And now I'm chained to this smelly Roman soldier 24 hours a day. Yeah, that's how people think. But how did Paul think about that? You see, Paul was gospel driven. This was an elite group of people. There were probably 9,000 soldiers in what was called the Praetorian Guard these were Caesar's secret service, his personal security force. They were men who received double pay. They got an extra pension and other benefits. They were they were the crack unit of the Roman army. And Paul's going, you mean I get another one of these guys within speaking distance every four hours around the clock for two whole years? You've got to be kidding me. And you can just imagine as the, as the key goes into the lock and the next soldier is brought in, Paul's just going like this. <laughs> Another opportunity to advance the gospel. Hundreds of soldiers heard the gospel because Paul was in prison. And it says that this became known throughout all of Rome. You see, Paul's case was a high-profile one. He, He was the leader of a new sect, and the Romans wanted to make sure that this didn't get out of hand. So everybody in Rome was talking about this. And as the soldiers learned that Paul was not there because he was a criminal or because he was a political activist, but simply because, as he says, he believed in and preached Jesus, they were going, huh? That's strange. Tell me more about it. All over Rome, the gospel spread because Paul was in prison. It's beautiful. Now, did Paul plan all of this out? Not at all. You couldn't, for one thing. And and second, it would be hard to plan your own beating and imprisonment and shipwreck and be chained to a Roman soldier. What did he say in verse 12? The tense of the verb there is a passive tense. What has happened to me? And he's indicating very clearly that he believes that there was a divine hand of providence behind and over every single thing that happened to him. It's the same thought that he expresses in verse 16. Knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. That is another military term that means you're under orders by the commander-in-chief. It wasn't that he had made a mistake and that he did something wrong and that he ended up where he shouldn't have been. No. He, as a follower of Jesus Christ, was under orders of the commander-in-chief and his orders were to be in that house imprisoned in Rome. You see, we need to understand that our God has a great passion that every single person of His creation on the face of the earth hear the good news of abundant life in Christ. And how He gets that message out He has so many different ways of doing that. And he is actually a creative genius in how he does it if we will but look at his hand and see it. And that's what Paul did. He understood that his circumstances, his difficult problems, were all God-ordained and God-designed in order to give him more opportunity to proclaim the gospel of Christ. All he needs is a willing servant, a gospel-driven disciple who will say, I get it. Life is not about me, it's about advancing the message of Christ. And so, my Commander-in-Chief, here I am. Put me wherever you want. If only it will advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's as Matthew Henry says, the strange chemistry of providence, that he can work so great a good out of so great an evil. It's understanding that God doesn't work in spite of our circumstances. He works through them because he's in charge of them. And the result is surprising. The word really in verse 12 indicates that it's unexpected. It didn't turn out like we would have thought. Paul's imprisonment did not slow down the spread of the gospel like people would have thought. It actually sped it up. This is because God is at work and he is a genius. Only God can work that out. Now, for the Romans, Caesar was Lord. But for Paul and the Philippian believers, Jesus was Lord. And his lordship is now beginning to make itself felt in the Roman Empire. Well, this is true in the mundane as well as the dramatic events of our lives. You see, God controls every single thing that happens to us. And let me give you one short example of each one of those. One mundane and one dramatic. Uh, I had a chance to visit our missionaries in Thailand last year. And after I had visited with them, I went to the airport in Chiang Mai with Brian and Kami to get on my flight to go down to Laos and visit our missionaries there. And when I got to the counter, I you know, gave my information. I was all checked in. and I mean, I, I had my ticket. But the lady looked at me and she said, where's your credit card? And I go, what do you mean? She said, well, we need to see the credit card that you bought those tickets with. I'm going, really? Well, that's interesting. I don't have that credit card. I mean, I'm in the system. I bought this ticket. I should be good to go. She said, no, you can't fly unless we see that credit card. And I'm thinking, oh, great. Here we go. I'm going to be stuck in Chiang Mai. I'm going to miss my flight. I don't even know what to do. And I could have started complaining. And I usually do, actually, when things turn against me like that, <laughs> just, just to be clear. But God gave me some grace And at that moment, it just occurred to me, maybe, do you think God allowed me to not bring that credit card? And allowed the Thai officials in their infinite wisdom to create this crazy rule that you have to have a credit card before you can get on the airplane? Yeah, God's over all of that. And I thought, what is God doing here? It's not so important that I make my flight. What's important is that this lady hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I said, what do I do next? And she said, well, you have to come over to this counter and buy a whole new ticket. I said, all right, let's go go do that. So we had about a half an hour with this lady as she was helping me through this process and showing me how to get the refund when I got back. And Brian and Cammie were there. We had a chance to talk about why they were in Thailand. Cammie got this lady's phone number. They interacted afterwards, and guess what happened? Because of my problems, the gospel advanced in a way that it never would have otherwise. And I wonder, how do we look at those inconveniences of life? See, God is is working it all together so that He will give us opportunity to say a word about Jesus to people that He brings us across. Now, it can also happen in a very dramatic way as well. Let me show you this picture of a young lady in India. She's in the middle of that picture. Her name is Kulbir. She's a student at New Theological College in India. She grew up in a Sikh home in the Punjab. And her mother got ill... Uh, The Christian pastor of the village came and prayed for her. She was healed. He shared the gospel with them and they became Christians. But just shortly after that, the villagers got upset at her father and they falsely accused him and put him in prison. And when our team was there in 2012, Kolbeer asked us to pray that her father would be released from prison. So we did that. Then just last November, we were back in India and uh, the ladies on our team asked Kolbeer, how is your father doing? And she said, afraid he's still in prison. And what was our first response? Bummer. Twelve more months in prison for nothing? But Colbert quickly went on to say, but guess what? God has opened up a door of ministry for him. There have been people in prison that have now heard the gospel, and every morning at 4 o'clock, he has a Bible study with a church that has started in that prison. You see, only God could do that but he orchestrates the mundane and the dramatic events of our lives so that he gives us a platform to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Missionaries in Pakistan told us, who had been there many, many years, they said, you know what's going to change the Muslim world? It's not just preaching the gospel. It's when they see how Christians respond to adversity because that shows that we have genuine life in Christ and that will change the equation of the spiritual battle. So my question to you is, what has happened to you that God has allowed? You all have your own stories. God has put you where you live, where you work. He's given you various challenges in life so you would meet people and would have an opportunity to advance the gospel where he has put you. Well, there's a second way that God uses our difficult problems to advance the gospel And that is that more believers share the gospel. Look at verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, we're often reluctant to share the gospel, aren't we? But we don't have near the problems that the Christians in Rome were facing. They wanted to be careful about how closely they identified with this new Christian group in case Rome turned against them. And that's exactly what happened just about two years after Paul wrote this letter. The emperor to whom, Nero, to whom Paul appealed was Nero. And in about AD 64, he became so anti-Christian that he tried to wipe him off the face of the earth. In fact, it said that Nero used a continuous supply of Christians to burn in his gardens to give him light at night. Now, if that was your fate, would you embrace being identified as a Christian? That's what the believers in Rome were thinking might happen. And who knows what might happen yet in our country. But here's the thing. Look at what the text says. Having become confident in the Lord by my deliverance, are much more bold to speak? No. It wasn't that God had released Paul and shown that he was not going to let his believers suffer. It's not that we're Teflon-coated and nothing bad ever happens to us. It is that in our imprisonment, in our difficulties, God can advance the gospel. And when the believers in Rome saw that, they said, wait a minute, that's something that I need to get a hold of. If God can advance the gospel through Paul's difficulties and imprisonment, then no matter what happens to me, he can advance the gospel through me as well, so I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to fearlessly share the gospel. And the text says they did it more and more because of Paul's example. Now, instead of just one man in one house radiating the truth of the kingdom of God, what do we have in Rome? We have hundreds of lights all over the city, maybe thousands of people that had been emboldened to share a word of Christ. And the gospel is advancing. This is what the gospel-driven life looks like. And how about us? We live in a very different society, and we are... Reluctant to share our faith, aren't we? Because it's not politically correct. The problem is that if you think you know somebody, something that someone else doesn't, you are considered intolerant. And so we just don't want to be considered that, and so we just be quiet. You know what we need? We need some encouragement from one another to make what happened in verse 14 happen here. And we're going to do that this summer. You're going to hear more about it in a couple of weeks, but our local outreach department is is going to give us a summer challenge this summer that is going to involve simply these words, sharing our lives. And the idea is so simple that even someone like me can do it. It's how about having an unsaved neighbor or friend over to your house for dinner and just see what God does with that. Now, Dale challenged the staff to do this first before we came to the congregation with this idea. And it was a challenge to us. We've lived in our neighborhood in Fishers for about 11 years. And we've gotten to know our neighbors. But I realized when Dale brought that challenge to us that we have never had our neighbors over for a meal in our house. We used to do that a lot as missionaries in Pakistan. We have not been good evangelists here in America. So we were stirred in our hearts to do that. So I I went next door and invited our neighbors from Taiwan over for dinner and they came over. We had Pakistani food. We had a good cross-cultural time of connecting and, and there just hadn't been a chance to, to get anything spiritual into the conversation. I'm just saying, God, what are you going to do here? And we thought they were about ready to leave and then sh- the lady asked me one question. She says, So what do you Christians think about homosexuals? <laughs> wow, that's, a, that's an interesting place to start the gospel. <laughs> But you know what? They sat for 45 more minutes and we got to talk about the revelation of God, about the love of God, about the person of Jesus Christ. God blew a door open. And just because we were willing to step out and knock on our neighbor's door and say, would you want to come over for dinner? God advanced the gospel even as weak and lousy as we have been in the past. So we're going to encourage each other. We want you to do this more and more and us to do it more and more to to fearlessly proclaim the gospel of Christ where he has Placed us. This is what it means to be a gospel-driven person. Well, being a gospel-driven person changes our perspective on our difficult problems. But secondly, it changes our perspective on our difficult people as well. Verses 15 to 18. How easy life and ministry would be if not for the people. The challenge is that we're all in the same boat together. There's lots of us in this ship and and we need to learn how to view each other and how to get along. And Paul begins to model here the attitude that he encourages the whole church to have in chapter 2. And that he encourages two individuals in particular by name in chapter 4 that they need to adopt. How are we to view other Christians? And as he goes through this section, he's actually structured it in a very careful way in in the Greek, and let me just show you how that's structured. It's called, for those of you that are studying Greek, a chiasm. He begins, he says, some preach Christ because of envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Then he repeats that same theme, the latter do it out of love, and then he goes back to the first group, the former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely. And then he actually, in verse 18, does another chiasm, some do it in pretense and others in truth. So if we filter those out and make two groups, we have Paul's friends and Paul's competitors. His friends are marked by this. They are goodwill. They they believe in Paul. They want the best for him. They they are doing it out of love. They understand that if Paul were free, he would be preaching the gospel all over Rome. And so they're doing that kind of on his behalf. And they're doing it in truth. They, They sincerely want the gospel to advance. That group of people we can understand. But the the second group of people are his competitors. And very interesting words used about them. They are preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry, out of selfish ambition. They're not doing it sincerely. They're hoping to hurt Paul. They're hoping, I think, to knock him down a rung or two. And they're doing it in pretense, not from a pure heart. So the question is, who in the world are these people and why are they doing what they're doing? And the answer is that we don't know. One commentator suggested six different possibilities for who these people are. And every one of those is simply speculation because the text doesn't say. But one thing we do know is that these people were not the Judaizers that Paul excoriated in Galatians. The Judaizers were those people that preached a different gospel. They said in order to follow Christ, you have to become a Jew first. There's things you have to do in order to be saved. And Paul has not the time of day for them. In fact, he says in Galatians one nine that those people can literally, is what he said, can go to hell. You see, if you mess up the gospel with Paul, you mess with Paul. But he doesn't speak that way about this group of people. You notice what he says. They're preaching Christ in verse 15. They're proclaiming Christ in verse 17. And Christ is being proclaimed in verse 18 as a result. So who were they? Well, again, we don't know. But they were preaching Christ out of envy. This was the same word that was used of the Jews in Mark 15, 10, where it said that they turned Jesus over to the Romans out of envy. Jesus was getting too big. They were getting too small, and they couldn't live with that, so they wanted Jesus dead. These people probably thought that Paul was getting too big. They were getting too small, and so now while Paul was in prison, they were going to make hay. They were going to get out and preach the gospel and bring lots of converts and grow their churches. And Paul languishing there in prison would would just be bummed off about that whole thing. And that made them happy. But what was Paul's response? Amazing. Verse 18. What then? In other words, so what? He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed And in that I rejoice. He rejoiced. Even though their motives were wrong. And he doesn't excuse them for that. Those are bad motives. They're listed in the the works of the flesh in Galatians 5 and elsewhere. But the message was clear. And so the end result. And Paul here looks at the bigger picture. Which is always helpful for us, is it not? The bigger picture, the end result, is that people are hearing the truth about Jesus Christ. And Paul says, then I don't care about my little kingdom. As long as his kingdom is going forward, I'm fine with it. And he rejoices in these difficult people. That's what a gospel-driven life looks like. Christ is preached and compared to that, what happens to me is of no consequence whatever. Well, how do we apply that today? We're living in a different situation than the church in Rome or Philippi. But I think here's a lesson we can take. We need to avoid as a church a sense of superiority, a sense of pettiness, and particularly a sense of territorialism. If there are other Christians in our city and in our country who are preaching Christ, but they might do things a little differently than we do. They might even believe some non-fundamentals differently than we believe. But if they're preaching Christ, we are for them. We love them. We're on the same team. The gospel is going forward in different shades and stripes, but it's the gospel that's going forward, and so we rejoice. We don't care about the kingdom of College Park Church. We care about the kingdom of Jesus Christ. This is the new perspective we have on difficult people when we are gospel-driven. Well, as we conclude today, I want to just say three things in closing. That's the text and... uh, First of all, Paul, in this text, comes across as a fanatic, and some might even say a lunatic. He he seems as crazy as Elwood P. Dowd, driven by only one thing. And if you are visiting today, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, if you're just checking us out, uh, I imagine you might be a little weirded out about this whole thing. Why? Well, if I were in your shoes, I would wonder how a group of people could speak so highly about somebody who was so clearly intolerant as Paul? Oh, he's tolerant of other Christians, that's fine, but he's absolutely intolerant of anybody who is not a Christian. And how can you honor that? Because Paul had sold his life out to this fact, that we are sinners and there is only one way to be reconciled to God and to avoid His punishment, and that is to have personal faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way. And that grates on your soul. (laughs) But let me tell you this today. Paul didn't make this stuff up. Where did Paul get it from? Well, Jesus himself had said that when he was on earth. And then Jesus himself appeared to Paul and revealed this truth to Paul. Paul wrote it down in this book called the Bible so that we could read it in 2014. We believe that this is the revelation of our Creator, God, that is true for all of eternity. It is not one of a number of man-made ideas. It is not an opinion. It is the truth of our Creator. But here's the thing. It is not bad news. It is good news. It is wonderful news. It is not exclusive. It is inclusive. It's one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. It's people who have found a cure for cancer telling other cancer patients there is a way to get healed and his name is Jesus. And Paul is doing this out of love for these people. He's actually modeling the prayer that Pastor Joe talked about last week in verse 9. He says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. How does our love abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment as we begin to pray for people and move them towards what they need the most, and that is life in Jesus Christ? And it involves changing the operating system of our minds, our agendas, what drives us in life, the gospel rather than ourselves. Secondly, notice also that Paul's focus in the text is not on the results of the preaching but on the fact of the preaching. Did you catch that? He understands that our role as human beings is simply to sow the seed, to spread the word, to talk about Jesus. But it is God who gives the growth. It is God who opens minds and hearts. It is God who shines His light into the darkness of the spiritual condition so that people can see the beauty of the face of Christ in the gospel. That's God's work. And we'll leave it up to Him to do that. We need to be faithful in sowing the Word, the seed of God. And yet as we do that, there will almost invariably be fruit. Because in Isaiah it says that the Word of God does not return to him void. And I love the way Paul ends this book of Philippians. We'll get to it in a few weeks. But we just got to have a quick peek forward. Verse 22 of chapter 4 all the saints greet you and then here, with a wink in his eye, I think he says this last phrase, especially those who are of Caesar's household. (laughs) Don't you love that? You see, he was faithful in his proclamation. God brought some to faith and they joined the family. And now they're part of the church of God. Well, finally, we who are followers of Jesus this morning, if you're like me, this has been a challenging passage and we need to do some spirit-led evaluation of our lives. What is it that actually drives our lives? What is the focus? What is the agenda? What controls the decisions we make? What determines our response to things in life? What creates our emotions? If you are lacking joy today, might I suggest that it's probably because your joy is anchored to the wrong things. It's anchored to your own comfort and security. Paul, there in prison, chained to a Roman soldier, rejoiced. He was the happiest man on the face of the earth because he had tied his joy to the advance of the gospel and not the creature comforts of his person. He's again modeling the prayer of the opening section, verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. For those of us who follow Jesus, there is only one thing that is excellent, and it is not the Indiana Pacers. It is not a, a, a pension plan that will provide for us till we're 185. What is excellent in this world? It is Jesus. And the life that He gives. What do you focus on when things are tough? Your pain? Or the opportunity for the gospel to go forward? Let me just give you one practical suggestion. You don't need to force the gospel. You don't need to be a weirdo in your neighborhood or a wacko at work. But here's what you need to do. You need to pray. Do you think God doesn't want to open up opportunities for you? Do you think He cannot do that? That's what He's all about. Pray specifically by name for your neighbors and the people that you work with and your family. Second, watch. God is going to do something. He is going to open doors for you to open your mouth. This is an adventure of faith. Test God. See what He's going to do. See how He's going to open opportunities for you to proclaim Christ where you never thought about it before. And then, thirdly, when he does that, just be brave and open your mouth. The Spirit will give you what to say then. It doesn't have to be the whole gospel every time, but just learn to flow through those doors that God opens and speak of your faith in Christ and of their need for him and of the life that he gives. So, how do we become gospel driven people? Because, frankly, if, if you're at all like me, we'd like to be, but honestly, we're just not. We're driven by too many other things. Well, do you remember how Paul became a gospel-driven person? Remember what we said earlier? It, It wasn't his belief in an imaginary rabbit. It was his personal encounter with the living Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the answer, my friends. The more time we spend with Jesus, the better we get to know Jesus the more His mind and heart will become ours and the more His agenda will become that which controls our own life. We'll become like Jesus and then we will be gospel-driven people. This is not a guilt trip. You don't have to go do this. But if you draw near to Christ and know Him better, He is going to fill you with His love and with His discernment. And then He's going to give you opportunities beyond your wildest imagination. To advance the gospel to the glory of his name. Will you pray with me? If you're here today and this has been a strange message. If you don't understand the gospel or if you're ready to receive Christ. We would love to talk to you. And there will be some folks at the front after this service that would love nothing more than to hear you. And share more words of life with you. If you're a follower of Jesus. Just let him work on your heart for a moment today in the light of this word. Are the wrong things driving you today? Not bad things, maybe, but not the best, not the gospel. Would you draw near to Christ? Let him fill you with his agenda, his heart. For the world around you. Father we thank you for your patience with us. We are not good witnesses. I am not. Help us to do better at it. As we draw closer to Christ. Help us to test you by faith. And to release you. To do things that we couldn't imagine. Among our friends and neighbors and family even. We pray that through us you would advance the gospel in our city. That you would continue to send those from among us that would advance the gospel around the world. That even our missionaries today who are listening by live stream would be encouraged. That whatever circumstances you've allowed to happen to them are for the advance of the gospel. Bless them in their work we pray. And help us now to be your lights in a dark world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go and be gospel-driven people today because of your love for your Savior.